Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Our front theater is returning to the live stage with a southern fairy tale. Ty Autry is the writer and star of this one-person show, based on his life growing up gay and Christian in the Deep South. We'll talk with City Lights producer Summer Evans later this hour. First, a graduate degree in Yollywood. Here in Georgia, there are 49 film and TV shows in production now. The industry in our state has never been stronger, and it's in this robust time that the University of Georgia is launching its MFA in film, television, and digital media. The program includes students living on site in production studios. Dr. Jeff Springston is the Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies in the Grady College at UGA. He joins us now with Frank Patterson from Trillith Studios, formerly Pinewood, and Kyle Hamlin, a UGA student pursuing his MFA now. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you, Lois. So great to be on the show. Dr. Springston, Jeff, how long has the creation of this new MFA program been in the works? Well, we've been at this for about three years. The actual first courses started last year in August. So the very first cohort is actually finishing their summer films this summer and then once they're done they're going to actually move out for the second year which is right at Trillith Studios so we're all like very excited about them getting really right in the cusp of frankly where a lot of the action is in the film and television industry these days. The pandemic halted all film and tv productions for several months leaving thousands of employees without work. Did repercussions from the pandemic influence or 
inform the curriculum that's being offered now? It definitely had some effects. For example, we offered a couple of courses in different order than we might have normally, just because those courses lended themselves potentially to, to going online if we had to do that. The reality is, is that we were actually able to hold in-person classes. Uh, it was done very carefully. There was a very strict adherence to uh, sanitary procedures and and making sure equipment was cleaned after it was done, et cetera. But, you know, in spite of a lot of obstacles and, and having to wear masks and so forth, the students and the faculty made their way through it. And it wasn't easy, but uh, I think they did really well. And, and obviously Kyle on here may have some thoughts about that as being the first person having gone through that experience. But, you know, overall, I was really quite proud of the students and the faculty and I was also extremely gratified that none of them actually got COVID. So uh, that was a real blessing. Yeah, that's a relief. How many students are in the MFA program? Uh, there will be 10 students this first year that will be going over to Trilla. And by design, we started out fairly small. And then each year, the program is going to get a little bit bigger in terms of numbers. So this incoming class that will start fresh in Athens in August uh, will actually be closer to 20 students. And then eventually we're, we're going to look to about 30 students within two to three years. And that's basically where we'll cap the program in terms of new students coming in. And how large is the faculty or full-time faculty? Right now, there's 10 faculty members that are part of this program. Some teach in the program more than others. There were four new faculty members that we hired very specifically just for this program. But then we also have a number of other faculty that have other duties and teach some undergraduate courses. But it basically, it's a, it's a really pretty good core of, of uh, faculty. And in addition, we also have several people that teach for the Georgia Film Academy that we actually employ in this program as well. So when you add it all together, we actually have a pretty good group of faculty professors teaching. Yeah, and offering practical experience as well. What are the various areas of the film industry that the MFA candidates study in this program? Our real focus is to develop in the jargon of the industry above the line talent, which in this case, we're, we're talking specifically about training people to be writers, directors, and producers. But the approach that we've decided to take in this program is to develop holistic film and television makers. So the students also get a lot, a lot of the below the line skills. So they're trained in uh, camera and lighting, they're trained in editing and, and some of those other aspects because ultimately, and, and in fact, they even actually have to take a, an acting for the camera class. And not that we think we're gonna put actors out of this program, but our feeling is that the more the students understand all of the various crafts that are involved in making a television and, and, and a film, the better they'll be at their above-the-line crafts. As part of the program, students spend the first year on the UGA campus in Athens, as you said, 
And during the second year, they get to live and learn on site at Trillith Studios. Frank, how did this partnership between UGA and Trillith come about? First of all, I'm so excited about this, Lois, for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's very exciting for the state of Georgia to have its first bona fide MFA program right in our industry. It is exciting. Great institution, Grady College with a wonderful history, and the Georgia Film Academy's thought leadership, and, and, and Jeffrey Stepakoff, the executive director of the Georgia Film Academy, who is a writer from Hollywood, right, who said it's very frustrating that we don't have this kind of program in our great state. So it's wonderful for the state of Georgia, but we got to be the special place <laughs> where the program located. Uh, I have the good fortune of working with some of the most amazing storytellers in the world every day, right? So that's great and it's exciting. But I think we got more excited over the fact that we were gonna have a pipeline of young talent being trained by the University of Georgia right here at Trillith because it really creates the full ecosystem of storytellers. I've had the good fortune of being a, you know, in education pretty much all of my professional career and I've watched young filmmakers become you know, Academy Award winners and, and really impact and change uh, the industry with beautiful stories. So I know how that pipeline works. So for us, having the second year of the MFA program located in the town at Trillet where these young filmmakers are gonna be bumping shoulders every day with all kinds of people, right? From below the line folks who are grip and electric team members to above the line folks who are just, you know, casually at working every day. We just think it's an unusual setting for an MFA program, by the way. And it really brings together the best parts of Georgia's industry and education in what we think is a truly unique program. So did Jeff approach you? I'm just curious about about this marriage. Please tell us <laughs> about your first date. Sure. Uh, well, first of all, much of the sort of wisdom behind this belongs to state leadership, who in the beginning realized if we were going to build this industry in the state, that we really needed to have the workforce necessary to support the industry. And so Jeffrey was identified by the state to launch this, what could be described as initially as a jobs training program for crew members, right? And needed a place to locate that training program. We were Pinewood at the time, and we decided to build a stage and a workshop for uh, this training program that was a Georgia Film Academy. Jeffrey and I began to work together and really talk about what was possible And we met each other, to your point, uh, Lois, I think in my very first day in coming here, Jeffrey was new to the marketplace as well. And we're filmmakers and we're storytellers and we're writers. So of course, we're going to dream together. And Jeffrey had this real clear vision about uh, how to take training to the next level. And to be honest with you, I'm just in support of it. And I said, you know, we will do anything we can to help land it. And he, he, very quickly came back to this needs to be a master of fine arts program. Are you in? And of course we said we're in, you know, let us figure out how we can help in any way. Uh, And so credit really is due uh, to Jeffrey and his vision. And my team and I really just dreamed with him and are supporting the dream that's now becoming a reality. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. 
I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with UGA Dean Jeff Springston, Trillith Studios' Frank Patterson, and UGA graduate student Kyle Hamlin. This is the state's first MFA degree in film, TV, and digital media. So I imagine you received many applications, Jeff. I'm curious about the qualifications you look for from applicants. What's required from students applying for the program? Number one, we were really thrilled. And and again, this year, we were thrilled by the the volume of applications we received, it was gratifying that there is obviously a high degree of interest. A lot of applicants will ask exactly what you just did. And one of the the real important elements I tell them is we're really looking for people that are passionate about making this a career. People that are maybe dabbling in all this maybe sounds interesting. Those people are are less interesting to us than people that you can tell jump off the page, eat, breathe, and and live storytelling. And so that's the number one thing we really want in our students. We're clearly looking at people who are very good thinkers and writers. And if someone has had some experience putting together short films, that certainly can help them jump a little bit ahead of the line. Um, obviously, having a, a film and communication background is helpful, but there were several students that didn't necessarily have an undergraduate major in this, but were really very clearly impressive in, in terms of what we thought their creative abilities were and their real passion to be in this industry. And so, in a nutshell, that's really what we're looking for. Kyle, why did you initially apply to be in this program? So for the longest time, I wanted to be an opera singer, but I realized halfway through my undergraduate experience that I wanted to really focus on film and TV. But at that point, my school didn't have that program. And so I had to finish out my undergraduate degree in, in music. And so when I found out about this MFA program in January of last year, I knew I immediately wanted to apply because I had no relevant film and TV experience. So I knew that this would be my best option to getting my foot in the door and learning everything that there is about film and TV. What particular area of study interests you the most? Right now, I'm most interested in screenwriting or producing. Now, you begin working at Trilith Studios next month. What aspect of working on site do you think will be the most engaging or exciting? I am hoping that we get a lot of shadowing and onset experiences that we wouldn't get on a undergraduate campus because um, we will be in the film studios and we'll be meeting all these different types of people like Frank mentioned. Um, and we haven't gotten the experience to do that in person yet. We've gotten to meet several people online, but meeting them in person will be a whole new experience for us. Sure. Frank, can you talk about any of the films or TV shows in production that students will work on? 
Uh, well, uh, Lois, I would so love to share with you what we're doing right now, but that I can't do. <laughs> I would tell you, think of the projects that you know have shot here in the past. We're so excited that WandaVision, for example, turned out to be a hit, and we're so happy about some of the new recent Marvel shows uh, that were made here. Uh, and that's been a great partnership for us. But these are the kinds of companies and projects that are on the lot today. We're extremely busy. Uh, we have three big uh, series projects on the lot right now. We have two big feature films. And the creative team members on these projects come to work here every day. Um, we have about 3,500 people badging on the lot this morning. They work out at the uh, Piedmont Wellness Center uh, in the morning. They uh, drink beer at our beer garden in the uh, <laughs> after work. And uh, we actually have some production office team members, some of the executives in the same office building that our students at the University of Georgia are going to be working in. And so basically the value of this opportunity is found in the working day-to-day -day next to and in parallel with all of these productions because it's those uh, sort of accidental, incidental connections that happen when you meet someone on the elevator. But uh, in addition to the kind of programmed opportunities uh, that come with having a screenwriter who hears on the lot is able to bring a workshop project to the students in, in the classroom because they're here. Jeff, I guess this would be for you. Thinking of other well-known film and media degree programs such as those at New York University or the University of Southern California. Will UGA's new master's program be as competitive and intensive? Well, that's ultimately the goal. I, I certainly wouldn't say that our, our nascent program right now is, is going to be the equal to uh, USC or NYU Tisch. But our intention is, is to very quickly be thought of at that level. And I think we've hired very well. They've had people at the caliber, like, for example, David Kep, who uh, is a very celebrated screenwriter for, you know, of Jurassic Park and many other programs. And, and he spent uh, over an hour with our students on Zoom. Uh, Stephen Canals, who has uh, just got nominated for two Emmys, he's going to be one of our first physical writers in residence that's going to be joining us this fall, and so on and so forth. And I think our faculty have such good connections in the industry that we've been able to leverage that. And so the students are, are able to talk with people that have really, really accomplished things in the industry. And it's hard really to duplicate that, you know, in necessarily in, in a lot of different programs. But, you know, certainly I think the big schools on the coast that you mentioned, you know, obviously they're, they're very storied programs. And, um, We've got a lot of work to do to catch up to that, but that's our goal. And I think ultimately we'll be up to that task. And Lois, if I might add, I know Jeff is being appropriately humble about the beginnings of this program, but I've been a dean, a professor, an educator at some of the top schools around the country most of my career and had the opportunity of serving as an outside evaluator to literally the top schools in the country. I spent a lot of time looking at these programs I am so excited about what the University of Georgia has done. 
in just its first year. It is way ahead in its history already of where those schools were when they began, and it's on path to becoming a top program quickly. How will students be able to build portfolios through this program? I'm curious about what examples of work they'll take away. Sure. One of the things is we feel really strongly that they need to produce films and they're doing so. In fact, this summer, they're uh, in the process of finishing up a 10-minute film. They produced uh, an early film earlier in the program, and then, of course, next year, they'll be primarily focused in on their thesis film or TV pilot. Uh, And some students may not actually produce a piece of uh, film or, or TV. They may go strictly the screenwriting route, in which case they'll develop a feature-length film or a TV pilot and a series Bible. And so when they walk out, we're uh, aiming to have them have a number of very tangible pieces of work that they can show and and basically, you know, sell their wares out there, whether it's uh, working, trying to to get into the television industry or whether it's uh, to be independent filmmakers. Dr. Jeff Springston is the Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies in the Grady College at UGA. He was joined by Frank Patterson of Trillith Studios and graduate student Kyle Hamlin. You can learn more about the University of Georgia's new MFA degree in film, television, and digital media on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, City Lights producer Summer Evans talks to Ty Autry about Outfront Theater's new one-person show, A Southern Fairy Tale. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Outfront Theater is returning to the stage with the in-person performance of a Southern fairy tale. Ty Autry is the writer and star of this one-person show based on his life, a gay Christian growing up in the Deep South. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with Ty via Zoom about his show, and he first talked about his upbringing. Growing up in the Deep South as a gay man was very interesting because 
for many, many years, I wasn't out. So it was all a secret. I lived a double life. I had the life of the 4.0 student who did sports, who also performed, who volunteered, who also held down a job. And on the flip side, I was this queer kid coming into my own while pushing against pretty much almost every ideal it felt like at the time. Because I grew up in a very conservative religious part of the South, any mention of homosexuality was not allowed. It just was something you never spoke about. So for many years, I didn't even know (laughs) what a gay man was because I had no knowledge of it. There was no education around it. So a lot of my early years in the South was a lot of floundering because I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know the history. I didn't know where we'd come from. I didn't know what we had fought for in terms of rights. And so coming in and out of the closet three different times like I did due to where I grew up was very traumatic because I went to a therapist who attempted to change my behavior patterns and how I related to people, which is a version of conversion therapy. I was, you know, excommunicated from a church at 16. I was banned from the school that was run by the church because they considered me a bad influence because of my queerness. And all of that culminated into some pretty powerful traumatic experiences, but they've led to the person I am today and the birth of this show, and also the birth of my point of view as an artist, which is wanting to blend the queer Southern Christian narrative together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, like you said, you channeled all of this trauma and events that happened to you into this one person show, Southern Fairy Tale. At what point did you realize, man, I need to make a play about this crazy stuff that happened in my life? (laughs) Yeah, that's a really good question of, you know, the inception of a piece of work and a Southern fairy tale was the first play I ever wrote. And ever since then, I've been curious about other playwrights and their first play to see like what was the moment that they became a playwright or writer. Because a little backstory, I actually went to Georgia Tech and got my engineering degree in electrical engineering. And so for the longest time, I told myself I didn't know how to write because the joke is engineers can't spell, right? (laughs) We uh, just aren't good at that stuff. We're good at math and the sciences, but it was always told engineers couldn't write except for like technical papers. When I graduated college, though, I got an apprenticeship at Georgia Ensemble Theater, started to become a performer and leave my engineering life behind in order to do this passion of mine. But it wasn't until 2018 when my mentor, Alex Bond, passed away. She died in her sleep. And our last meeting, though, that we had before that moment, I shared with her my story, kind of a longer version of what I just shared with you here. And she told me to write it down. She told me to create my own work because we needed stories like mine to help people heal through the same trauma or similar traumas that I experienced. And... So with her passing, I decided to write this play in memory of her and everything that she taught me before I moved away to New York. Um, 
so I've been working on this play for three years now. I've been writing it and tweaking it and editing it. I'm a bit of a perfectionist at times and I'm now learning how to let go of my plays because a play I think is never gonna be perfect. But there's a part of me that always wants to adapt and change and grow it based upon how I adapt and grow and change as an individual and as a creative, especially with the past year and a half that we've had, I'm not the same person that I was during that time. Has the script changed at all since this was written pre-pandemic now, three years later, has it changed the script itself? It has since the very first version was like a five page script that I did in my living room in New York City with like 20 people crammed inside. And then I did a workshop production of it. And after the workshop production, I realized that the entire structure needed to be changed. I trashed it completely. I kept the context uh, and, the, and the text itself, but I decided to reorient how the story was being told. But since then, that was in 2019 that the structural changes came. I decided after the pandemic and after stepping away for a year and a half to reevaluate the entire script with fresh eyes. I didn't look at it for a year and a half and make, you know, minor changes, word changes that I felt like helped boost the show. But there's also a part of the script that never sat right with me. And it had to do with my relationships that I pour into the script that are based upon my parents' relationships. Because it is a fictional character I've created. It's based upon my life, but I've added fiction. And there were just certain elements of it that I wanted to hone, enhance, and reflect more of my journey and growth with each of my parents and try to infuse that into the play in a more precise way that maybe will help other people like me either bridge a gap with a parent or understand it's okay to walk away and become more authentically you and you don't have to change who you are and code switch for people in order to be accepted. I'm just curious, do either of your parents know about this play? Yes, they do. They do. What were their reactions? My dad has not seen it. My mom, who is hands down one of my best friends, we talk about everything. She saw it and she doesn't fully approve of it because it's not the whole truth. And that's, I think, it's just something tricky as a playwright that I'm still trying to figure out. And her and I just don't see eye to eye on it, which is totally fine. We've had conversations about it because it's not the full truth, right? It's an hour long show that I've crafted to tell the perspective of one individual. And in the grand scheme of things, when looking at the seven to eight years that this play spans an hour with mainly focusing on the high school life, we don't get the perspective of all the other elements that came into play that influenced who I became, right? Like my mom's story, my dad's story, my four siblings' stories, my grandparents' stories, and how that would influence somebody. So it's all right that we don't see eye to eye on it. I mean, I think in a way that's partly what art is about. Not everyone has to agree with it or support it or love it. But I do know that this play has an impact on people. It does influence healing or it influences them to reevaluate the relationship to faith or what that means to them or their past. And if I'm able to do that with people that come into my audience and see the show, then I'm doing my job. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the play, you tell audiences that your character, 
Alex Belmont, which, by the way, I really liked that nod, I'm assuming, to your mentor, Alex Bond. That was really sweet. Yes. <laughs> that your character identifies as a Christian today. Mm -hmm. Is that true for yourself as well? Yes, it is. I identify as a Christian. I like to label it as a relationship with God. And going back to your question about the changes in the script, I've actually infused a script of more of my theology and thinking about faith than previously. So you'll find things like, for example, I took away he, him pronouns from God and used they, them instead, which is a more new way of thinking about a higher power and deity. And I did other minor changes as well that infused my, as Ty, my theology and believing in faith into this play. And when you approach this play, I noticed there were a lot of comedic elements, you know, a lot of punchy lines and funny anecdotes. Why did you want to infuse that comedy into an otherwise sensitive and touchy subject? Because healing is birthed from laughter in many ways. And being a queer individual is also having the wisdom or knowledge, I guess, I'm not sure which word be more appropriate here, to know when to make fun of yourself or the circumstances in order to help you move past them. And I also find, you know, that we all enjoy a play where you're laughing just as much as you're crying. I know that sitting to hear one person talk for an entire hour is a lot sometimes, especially if it's all dark material. If you're going through watching someone, you know, whip themselves, so to speak, through the text and see them go through their traumatic event, you're going to be sitting through an hour of drama, which is fine and fun, but I felt like it would be more inspiring and more uplifting in terms of it being a fairy tale to have those comedic moments, the one-liners, the sarcastic thoughts about <laughs> life and sometimes the stupidity of the circumstances that were going on around this character and his entire life as it in a way fell apart and then rebuilt itself into something better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. In the past few years when this is shown in Dublin and New York, did you ever notice a difference in the audience's responses when you hit a certain line compared to when you performed in front of Atlanta and like a Southern audience? Ooh, yes, I definitely would say so. I think the most rambunctious audience I've ever had was actually in Atlanta because since it's a Southern play, a lot of the nuances of the script deal with stereotypes that exist in the South. And in a way, I think because I also look at the South in terms of what hyper-conservative Christianity did to me, there are more Southerners that can relate to that than there are in the North. Because I had friends in the North and New York who came, and even in Dublin, who came and saw it, and they were completely shocked that something like that was still happening even just 20 years ago in terms of getting kicked out of a school for being gay or excommunication or being sent to therapy for certain things. So I think that's the difference that a New York audience kind of felt more the somber tone because they were learning something new or being reminded of a different environment outside of, you know, the diverse city that New York city brings. And in the South, they kind of laughed at it more because they saw it in themselves because they themselves 
probably went through something very similar or if not more traumatic than what I experienced. Right. It's very relatable. People that are going to see this at Outfront Theater can definitely relate those that are from and born and raised in the South for sure. Oh, a hundred percent. And I have people coming back to see it a second time and bringing new friends, just super exciting to see. And I'm excited to hear what they think of the changes as well. Yeah. Whenever you're on stage performing and you're looking out to the audience, do you ever have a particular person or a group of people in mind that you're speaking to? Mm, you know, my director, uh, David Lee Carson, and I have gone back and forth on this many, many times. And in my head, it's either two people. I either am talking to other queer individuals like myself who have been burned by faith. And when I say faith, I mean faith of all spectrums, not just Christianity, but any of them. And I think that's who I mainly talk to most times, but there's also a part of me that sometimes talks to the parents of queer children. Because my hope is that parents, when they see this, get to have a window into how their child may have been thinking during their time living in the house while they're in high school. Because something that I've recently discovered and I've infused into this play is this idea that my parents, and I would argue, which you can get into that later, that the church acted out of love for me in everything that they did. But when love is misdirected, even if it's intentionally good, it can burn and hurt. And I think we all even experience that ourselves of acting out of love, but then hurting someone close in our lives because of that. And when I see parents in the audience and I talk to them about the story, I hope they understand that there is healing and forgiveness in that. And it's a path forward. Lastly, Ty, how has creating this play been therapeutic and healing for you? Oh, uh... <laughs> where do I begin? <laughs> where do I even begin? Oh, goodness. When I first started writing this play in 2018, it unlocked so much pain that I had been holding on to. I didn't know what to do with it when I started writing this. It was the first time that I actually looked at my past. And it was the first time that I came to confront everything that happened and tried to figure out what did it mean to me? So through this play, I feel that I've stepped further into the authentic version of me, which is just standing firm again in this perspective that I am a queer Southern Christian individual and that all three identities are not in conflict, but are in harmony inside of me. And this play, A Southern Fairy Tale, in the creation of it helped facilitate that awakening playwright and actor Ty Autry. He'll star in a southern fairy tale at Outfront Theater on July 30th and 31st at 8 p.m. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Up next, 
Local Travel Treasures with the author Travis Swan Taylor. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As travel changed drastically over the course of this pandemic, many are still remaining close to home, which is a great reason to welcome the idea 111 places in Atlanta that you must not miss. Last fall, the author Travis Swan Taylor joined me to discuss his book, beginning with the origins of his field guide. As part of a global series, my publisher is in Cologne, Germany, and they have 111 places guidebooks for cities all over the world, and I got to do the one for Atlanta. Wonderful. What's significant about the number 111? That's a very good question. So Cologne, Germany, the city of Cologne, 11 is their lucky number. In fact, they have an annual festival on November 11th at 11.11 a.m. every year. So they wanted to use that for this book series, but 11 chapters isn't enough to make a whole book. So they added one to it and they came, got 111. <laughs> I remember being in Cologne in November and hearing about the significance. Well, how did you decide upon which places in Atlanta to feature in your book? I have been writing, I've been the author of a travel blog or an Atlanta tourism blog, Wonderlust Atlanta. I've been doing that for 10 years. I had lived in Atlanta for 15 years, moved to D.C. for nine, and I've now been back 10 years. And when I first moved back, I started writing a blog just to re-familiarize myself with the city. And it was so much fun. I'm still doing it. So a lot of the places came from my blog, but then I also discovered a lot of new places. So would you tell us about your research process, the process of narrowing it down to highlighting these Atlanta landmarks and Markers such as the Dogwood Bench in Piedmont Park, the Lions of Atlanta, etc. <laughs> yeah, the, the Lions are is an interesting story. I'll get right to that. Um, but the research I did a lot of research at the Keenan Research Center at the Atlanta History Center. Um, had access to newspapers.com, which goes back to the beginning of Atlanta. Did a lot of interviews, phone calls, emails. Talked with other authors who've written books about Atlanta. You mentioned the Lions of Atlanta. They're the ones that stand guard over the Marriott Marquis for Dantlines. They're gorgeous. And I started researching them for a blog post, and it took me four months to figure out, their, to find their name. Anyone I asked didn't know. And you know, every time you do a web search, it come, the Lion of Atlanta, it comes up, uh, the Lion in uh, Oakland Cemetery. Obviously, they're very different. Turns out they were commissioned by John Portman, who designed the Marriott Marquis, Uh, He commissioned a Belgian artist to create those lions. The reason I couldn't find them is because their name is plural, and they're called the Lions of Atlanta, but in French. So that would be Les Lions d'Atlanta? Atlanta, yes. What about the Japanese lantern? Love that one. So I was a docent at the garden for a number of years at the Atlanta Botanical Garden. That lantern was given to us by what would become our sister state um, in the early 1960s. And the garden wasn't formed until 1976. So that lantern has been there for a very long time. 
and it's approximately 325 years old. So it already had, was already an aged piece before it came to us. And then sometimes people say that it was gifted by our sister city, but we didn't have a sister city in Japan until 2005, I believe it was. So it was our sister state who gifted it to us. And what is the name of that state? It's uh, Kagoshima Prefecture. Ah, you mentioned your tourism blog, Wanderlust Atlanta. How does the blog differ from what's offered in this book? The blog is more my personal experience of a place, or it also includes events and people, where the book is more telling a story about a place. Interesting, fascinating, weird quirks about the places in Atlanta. Well, not only does this book offer beautiful places to photograph and explore. You also include locations like the Cook's Warehouse. Why do you want to include stores such as this kitchen repository? I love Cook's Warehouse. Um, it's in there because it is, you know, people think of it as you know, the mothership for all things kitchen and cooking. But it's also one of, if not the largest, cooking school in Atlanta, or in the Southeast, really. Well, I have to tell you, Travis, that I live not far from the Ansley Mall. And the Cook's Warehouse there has such an intimate neighborhood feel to it. You'd think it was an old-fashioned, one-of-a-kind place. Yeah, it, it totally is. Mary Moore, who, who is the founder, she was on a trip in New York doing a cooking demonstration in one of the markets, and she was looking for a crepe pan, and she went to every kitchen store she could find and couldn't find one, and then a chef friend of hers took her to this warehouse-like place, and they had everything, and Mary's like, why don't we have one of those here in Atlanta? Two years later, she opened Cook's Warehouse. And it seems to carry on the feel of a city market where everybody's welcome. Yeah, absolutely. You couldn't include all of Atlanta's wonderful <laughs> restaurants, but there are many to choose from in this book. How did you begin the selection process? By trying to find the unique places, places or reasons that people might not think of to visit a place. Um, one of my favorites is my parents' basement, comic book bar. So they have comic books and arcade games and pinball. We've got a full bar, full restaurant, huge patio, lots of vegan options. It's just a really fun place to go. Buford Highway came to mind when thinking about the wealth, the rich array of international food we can find in Atlanta. Would you talk about how you compiled your favorite places into that one section? I've lived all over the country. I've lived in Europe. I love food. I'm a big time foodie. I wanted to showcase that we do have international food options and we're an international city. There's so much to see and do here and it's not just Southern culture. There's plenty of that, but also international culture. And that's something that non-Atlanta visitors might be surprised to find. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So all the more reason to highlight that. Travis, why did you want to include some controversial landmarks such as 
the bronze monument of General John Brown Gordon at the intersection of Washington Street Southwest and MLK Jr. Drive. Because there's no whole story that doesn't have good and bad. The only reason that I put that particular statue in there is because it's Atlanta's only equestrian statue. But if you'll see the subheading, the chapter title is Atlanta's only equestrian statue, the subtitle, for all the wrong reasons. Important to include that. Absolutely. And also on the Capitol grounds, dedicated just a few years ago, is a statue of Martin Luther King Jr., designed and sculpted by a local sculptor, Martin Dahl. And it's the first African-American statue on the Capitol grounds. And there was some controversy about placing it on the back of the backside of the Capitol, but it does face Martin Luther King Jr. Drive and it faces the King Center, which is pretty cool. Yes. What were some new places you didn't know about before you started creating the guidebook? There were some really cool places that I had never been to. Actually, Hardy Ivy Park. One of the biggest surprises in writing the book were the connections between a lot of different places that are in the book. I went to included the Carnegie Education Pavilion in the book because it, it's in Hardy Ivy Park at the intersection of West Peachtree and Peachtree Street. It's made with the columns that were once part of the Carnegie Library, which was the South's first public library. The photo in the book has some folks in cosplay. So during Dragon Con every year, the Carnegie Pavilion is probably the most popular place to do cosplay photographs. And those folks are members of Cosplay Volunteers of Atlanta. So they'll don their costumes, everything from Superman, Wonder Woman, to Black Panther, and they'll go to children's hospitals or nonprofit events benefiting children. But also at that park, many, many years ago, was the Erskine Memorial Fountain, which was Atlanta's first public fountain. It was there for a few years and then moved to Grant Park in 1912 and just in recent years has been undergoing a restoration. And also at Hardy Ivy Park was the Samuel Spencer Bronze that now stands in front of the Norfolk Southern Building at Peachtree and 15th. But it was moved from downtown to Brookwood Amtrak Station, just on the line of Midtown and Buckhead. And now it's at Norfolk Southern on 15th and Peachtree. And Hardy Ivy Park was named after one of Atlanta's earliest settlers or pioneers. His cabin, if you go over to the Marriott Marquis, where we were talking about the lions earlier, inside the Marriott Marquis, there's a bar called Pulse. That's right about where his cabin was. So that one little spot, I mean, Surprise after surprise after surprise has all these connections. Yeah. For Atlanta residents, how do you think this book will resonate? My publisher has this um, challenge. It's 111 Places Challenge. And it it works for any of our books. But I have one person who is very actively doing the challenge. Um, She's lived in Atlanta for more than 50 years. And when she got the copy of the book, there were only five places she'd never been to. So, and she is so excited. And the challenge, you get a free book for any city at the milestone of 50 places, 75 places, and 111 places. And I've, I've only received very good feedback. It's a beautifully constructed book. And the cover it has a phoenix, which I love. And the color of the front of the book is the blue from the city of Atlanta flag. Ah, 
Now, for non-Atlantans, what do you hope visitors from other cities and states will take away from this field guide? I hope they'll take away that we're a very rich, interesting community, that we're not just Coca-Cola or the aquarium or other major tourist destinations. And those are amazing. I love them all. But there's so much more that city has to offer. There's interesting stories. There's fascinating histories. People that you would never know were part of Atlanta's history. We're a very complex, like I said, international city. Lots of amazing stories. Travis Swan Taylor, author of 111 Places in Atlanta You Must Not Miss. You can learn more about his guidebook on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, tomorrow at 11 a.m. Author and cultural historian Cassine Gaines on his recent book, Footnotes, The Black Artists Who Rewrote the Rules of the Great White Way. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.